Thank you so much. And if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, uh, we'll be turning to the book of Ruth this morning. You can find your place there. Uh, Not too hard to find. Go past the books of Moses and right after Joshua and Judges, you'll find tucked away before Samuel. Um, that little book, and we'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, I want to ask you a question as we get started this morning. Uh, continuing uh, our study we began last week called Resolutions for the Soul. If you weren't here, don't worry. We'll uh, get you caught up real quickly today um, as we still capitalizing on the new year. Um, consider what I think is the most important resolution we can make. Uh, I believe you're here today because you're conscious and you're aware that this is a very important area of your life, maybe the most important area. So I want to ask you a question. Have you ever made a decision in the moment that you were unsure about, but in hindsight, you were so grateful that you did? Have you ever made a decision in the moment you didn't know if you were making the right decision or you didn't know if you were making the decision that would be the most advantageous or you you didn't know if uh, it would be the easiest or the most comfortable road to walk, but in hindsight, there's no question that you made the right decision. Now, maybe you take all the credit for having foresight. Maybe your mom or your dad takes all the credit for saying, hey, you should do this. Uh, Maybe you you would admit that you you got lucky. Um, You you didn't know how big of a decision you were making at the time, and and you just thought it was just a normal, uh, every other day decision, and you made it. And wow, looking back, you really uh, uh, made made an important one. Um, Maybe, you know, you're a little bit shocked that it all worked out the way it did. You didn't realize you were making the right decision, and and you kind of just went for it, and here you are. Uh, I think all of us can recall a moment in time where we made, we had a choice to make, uh, and, and we knew it was very important, or we knew that it was something, hey, we had to make it, we couldn't let it tarry any longer. Uh, maybe you didn't realize what hung in the balance, and, and again, who, who can ever realize what all hangs in the balance in the moment? But you felt enough pressure that you knew you had to make a decision, and that it was important that you made it right. Now, I, I don't know, maybe maybe it was a flippant, offhand decision that turned into a, changing your life dramatically. Um, it could have been any yes or any no that you gave uh, to somebody or something. Uh, it, it could have been a yes that you gave to a it could have been a yes that you gave to a job opportunity, a college opportunity. Uh, it could have been a no to any of those same things that directed you in, in an important way. Uh, I think some may think that uh, may, may, may think this is making all of life much more serious than it maybe should be or really is, and, and maybe you're adding stakes to things in an unnecessary way. But but I think that every decision we make, we should give um, such such emphasis to that the yes that we give or the no that we give, it could change our lives. And and it may be a trivial thing like, hey, you know, what am I going to do today? And you may not ever see how that could ever be bigger than just today. Uh, but, But I don't think it would hurt any of us. And I don't think that it would be to our detriment at all if we took every decision and every choice that we made or that we had to make and considered that it could change our lives. How much more thought... How much more consideration, how much more prayer would you give to each decision that you had to make if you lived like every choice carried tremendous consequence? And again, I know there's some things that you think, well, what could this ever mean for me beyond today? It's just a simple decision that's going to impact me today. It might change what I do for the afternoon. It's not going to make that big of a deal. But, but what if? What if you gave every decision you make, what if you gave the smaller decisions that much emphasis so that when you got to the bigger decisions, you didn't even think twice about it? You knew that it was an important thing, whether saying yes or no, it can matter beyond just this simple moment in time. It could change your life for the better or for the worst. How much more prayer and consideration and thought would you give to those decisions and choices if you realize that every choice you make 
carried that kind of consequence. Now, there are some things that are obviously much lower stakes than others, uh, but I think it's clear that any particular choice could carry powerful consequences and do carry powerful consequences with it, especially, especially if we consider how every decision impacts who we are and who we want to be. Who, what kind of person we want to be and what kind of person we want to remain. That if we consider that every decision we make reflects ultimately something inside of us, that every decision we make, every choice we make uh, impacts who we are and who we are going to be. And, And if we want to be a certain kind of person, then every decision we make should be Consider that. Now, if you're wondering why I think we should have this serious of an outlook for any area of our lives, it's because 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus Christ, who we believe to be God in flesh, walked the earth and did all sorts of miracles, all sorts of signs, all sorts of wonders. But one day he stood in front of the biggest crowd that potentially he ever spoke to. One day he stood in front of this massive crowd and he asked one of the most provocative questions that ever has been posed. Really, this question, more than any other question posed by any religious figure, any philosopher, any leader of any kind, this question has the potential to shape and change the direction of any life that gives it thought more than any other prompt or any other question that anybody ever asks you. And I know that's a big, big, you know, building it up, but I, I, I believe that. That this question has so much potential and power to change your life. He asked this question, or these questions. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. For what can a man or what can a person give in return for? As in, if you live your life and at the end of the day you realize you sold out on the one thing that you can take with you, what would you give in exchange for your soul if you realize that you turned it in along the way? Now here's what people, here's why Jesus' audience had never thought about this. Because their entire life had been about gaining the world. And I might not gain the whole world, but I got to get my little piece of it. Right? That's the way the world has always worked. I've got to fight for whatever bit of territory, whatever bit of possession, whatever bit of treasure I can. I got to get my hands on whatever I can because that's what makes my life matter and that's what gives me value and that's what gives me meaning. And I'm going to have to scrape and claw and fight for every little bit I can get. That's what life is all about. And Jesus said, I know that's what you think life is about. I know you think life is about the perfect uh, dream uh, version of, of, of this existence. Having everything you want. Having the right people in your life. Having all the treasures, all the possessions, all the material. Having the health and the wealth and the prosperity. I know that's what you think life is about. And I've leaned into that. I've healed you. And I've blessed you. And I've done all these things for you. But now my sermon is changing. And now I'm asking you something that you haven't ever thought about before what if you were to gain all that but you find out at the end that there's something more important inside of you that you lost sight of and that you lost in the process that what if after chasing after this world and getting everything you could ever ask for and more what if that actually exchanges who you really are and who you want to be in the process And everybody in Jesus' audience says, I I never thought about that before. Jesus, we don't even know what a soul is. And he says, exactly. That's why I've come to ask you this question more importantly, but also to show you that you can change the way you're living your life and make the most important thing at the very center. Now, he revealed to us the most important part of us, the most valuable part of us, detached from 
what we have and what we don't have. Detached from the material. That our souls, our inner eternal selves, where our emotions come from, where our consciences are wired to, the most important part of us is our soul because our soul is us Long after we leave this world, long after this world passes away, our soul remains forever because that's who we really are. It's housed in this body. It's housed in this world. But there's a part of us that God created that's in his image that will be somewhere forever. So what we do for our souls, how we care for our souls matters more than anything else. Now, you may ask, and I think most of you already agree, but you may ask, why do I take Jesus so seriously on this? Because he would go on to lay down his life for us, to free our souls from sin and shame, to fill our souls with his life and his purpose. I take him serious because he, meant, he, he believed in this so much that we needed salvation, that he gave his own blood to bring us back to God, to reconcile us to our creator, to give us a relationship with God, to give our souls the life that we are so desperate for that we're trying to fill with all these material, earthly, temporary things. Jesus has been a household name for 2,000 years because he alone directs our hearts to this place of consideration and prioritization of our souls. And he shows us that caring for our souls should inform every decision that we make in every area of our life and every other area of our life finds its best form and its uh, fullest and best version when our souls are most cared for. At the end of the day, regardless of how our lives play out, if our souls weren't the priority, then it won't matter how everything else went because it'll all be for nothing. That's what Jesus said, and I believe him. But if we make a practice of caring for our souls, our entire perspective shifts, where even the greatest losses in this life may prove to be greater gains for our souls. And this is meant to get our attention and meant to make us lean in a little bit and think, well, I want to know more about this because if this is true, then everything's on the line if I don't consider my soul. To continue this conversation that we started last week, we're going to look at a pretty familiar story in the Bible and, and maybe with a perspective that's new for you. Uh, this story really hinges on the decision of a single person uh, that ultimately doesn't just change their world, but it changes the world. It's a big deal, and, and not everybody has that kind of an impact on the world, but, but this, one's, this person's did. And really, it revolves around the decision they made to put their soul first, to put God first, in what seemingly was an exchange of what they knew for what they didn't know so that they might know God above all else. They exchanged certainty for uncertainty so that they might have certainty about God and everything else didn't matter. So it's on that note that we've turned to the book of Ruth, which is about a young woman, of course, named Ruth. The story of Ruth should really, I think, resonate with every Christian because Ruth's story is our story, and it can be our story. Uh, more than probably we've ever considered before, we first meet Ruth when the Bible tells us the land of Israel is facing a severe famine, uh, particularly the hills of Judea, the, 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 the towns of Jerusalem and Bethlehem and all the fields around it uh, are, uh, are facing a severe drought and a severe famine as a result. Uh, during this time, unless you were very wealthy, you either had to go and f find food uh, wherever you, you could find it, and if you didn't have the money, you, you couldn't pay for it, uh, or you just resorted to, to dying. And, and you might think that's a little bit harsh, a little bit cruel, but that's how the world was. Uh, that if you had money and you had land and you have had stored up stuff, you survived. But every few years, an entire portion of the population of every nation would just fall away, would, would just die because they could not survive 
the famines and the rich didn't share with the poor because, hey, it's ours and we need it. Uh, and, and, and again, the poor and the, the people that didn't have a lot, they ended up eating what they had until they didn't have anything else. Uh, and again, that's the way the world worked on repeat, almost. So there was a man named Elimelech. We don't give people cool names like this anymore. Uh, maybe you should. Uh, maybe, we, maybe, maybe we will one day. Uh, but uh, Elimelech, uh, Elimelech uh, we don't know much about him, but um, he had a small parcel of land. He owned a, just a little small portion of land. But that land didn't do, any, do him any good because he didn't have enough land to make extra to store up for, for the hard times. Uh, and he couldn't grow anything because of the drought and because of the famine. Um, so he had to leave Israel. And any time in the Old Testament, where people had to leave Israel to find refuge, it was never a good situation. And you never wanted to leave your homeland for some foreign land that you didn't even know if you'd survive in. So Elimelech made the tough decision. We've got to leave in order to survive. He and his wife Naomi and their two sons went to the land of Moab, which is going to be very important for the whole story, really. Um, it was there that their sons married two Moabite daughters, Moabite girls. Most likely they were sisters. The text doesn't tell us that, but it's likely that these two girls uh, were kind of a package deal. They made a, they, they met a family. Hey, I've got two sons. You've got two daughters. Hey, let's see if we can make something happen. Uh, Elimelech and his wife moved to Moab and their two sons married these two girls. Now, we know from how the Old Testament works, if you weren't in the nation of Israel, you weren't in the story of what God was doing. Um, you might get lucky and brush up against God's activity, but, but his chosen people were the Jews. And maybe one day the rest of the world could get in, but at this point in time, it was just Israel. Uh, and, and nobody else really fit into the story. So, so these two Moabite girls are grafted into the story. I want you to think about this. Because of a famine, they would have never got in the story if not for Israel suffering a famine. And these people had to move and they get in the story because of an inconvenience for Israel turned into an invitation for Moab. If you want to know proof that God is always at work to save more people, this should be enough to convince you. That Moab was so far away from Israel in terms of the covenant and becomes, in terms of beliefs, and we'll talk all about that today. But here, because of a famine, Moab gets a chance. Now, not all of Moab, just two people, but that's more than anybody ever thought would get a chance. What was an inconvenience for Israel was an invitation, an opportunity for Moab. And these two girls, they won the lottery, as it were, until maybe they found out they, they didn't. Uh, because as you know, maybe you know, the whole fam uh, as the family waited out the famine, the, 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 the blight or the uh, natural disaster, it spread into Moab. And Elimelech got sick and died. And his two sons got sick and died. Fortunately for Naomi, word spread that the famine had lifted in Israel, and because Israel had a welfare system to take care of the poor and the widows especially, um, she knows she can find a place to live out her days comfortably there. She isn't as confident about her daughters-in-law being accepted as widows. Not because the law excluded foreigners, but because in this case, the food was scarce and they weren't going to share it with people they didn't really think were a part of the family. On, on top of, they were Moabites. And as we find out later in the story, that didn't really click too well with Israel. Now, Naomi realizes she's going to have to make a difficult, have a difficult conversation with her daughters-in-laws. And as awkward as it would be, she thought to herself, they'll probably prefer staying in Moab anyway. They don't want to be burdened taking care of their mother-in-law, who they really aren't related to, and they don't have that big of a, of a connection to. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's there I want to jump into the story as it's told in the book of Ruth. And I want us to see how these two girls respond. One responds as you would expect her to and has most would. And the other makes the most unexpected of choices 
with a powerful proclamation of faith that I think is so relevant for us today. So I want to read the whole passage, and then we'll talk about it some more. Ruth 1, 6 through 18, and the text tells us this. And Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you find rest in Uh, rest each in the house of her husband as in I hope you can get remarried and and have a chance at life Um, so she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept and they said to her surely we will return with you and your people but Naomi said turn back my daughters why will you go with me are there still sons in my womb that, that they may be your husbands turn back my daughters go for I am too old to have a husband if I should say I have hope I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons as in hey my time is running out and it's almost over and if I'm going to have a chance to you know and we'll talk about all the details here but if I'm going to have a chance like hey to give you guys a a future husbands I'd have to start tonight and that's going to take a long time and that ain't going to happen right Verse 12, turn back my daughters, or verse 13, would you wait for them until I was, uh, till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. They lifted up their voices and wept. Again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. She said, look, your, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you. Or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. You just don't read this kind of stuff in the Old Testament. Your people, my people, my God, your God, my God. When you die, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts you and me. And, And when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her and they just got on their way. Now I want to I want to explain to you how some things worked back in the old days uh, of, of ancient Israel, um, and it's very different than they are today. But the world was very divided by ethnic and cultural lines, um, and, and and most of the time people stayed in their bounds because they felt like that's where God put them, and they should they they didn't have any way to really leave. Every tribe, more than just every nation, every tribe had their own gods and their own traditions and their own customs. So it, it made it very difficult for tribes to mingle and, and really not always the best uh, in the best interest for tribes to, to mingle. Um, so what's already transpired in this story is already far from the norm. But, but now, now that there's this marital connection uh, and, and it was severed, there was just no logical reason for Ruth and Orpah to remain with Naomi. They would just be setting themselves up for toil and strife. It was already going to be tough for them if they went back to their own people. Going into, a foreign, going into Israel where they would be foreigners, it just wasn't going to be a good situation. It wasn't going to be ideal. So when Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, go and return, she's not trying to get rid of them. Certainly she appreciated their help, but, but she was reading the room and understanding that there was still a chance for them to remarry in their own country and move on with their lives. Were they to return to Judah with her, they would be saddled with taking care of Naomi and the burden of being foreign widows in a land not particularly enthused about foreigners, especially Moabites. So it just didn't make sense. And she doesn't want to come out and say that, but 
because she's just thinking they'll get along with the idea, uh, with, with the hints she's dropping. So we read how Naomi explained this to the girls, painting a pretty grim picture. And I, I think she just didn't want to give them a false hope because why would you do that? So as a widow herself, the laws of Judah uh, had a system that the land that belonged to her husband would go to her husband's nearest kin, not his wife. Now, that was not God's plan originally, but the men that had the power seized it and, and, and took advantage of it. Um, so if a man died, instead of it going to his wife, the, the, the land would go to his nearest of kin, his brother, his cousin, so forth, down the line. Um, it, that wasn't right. It was not fair, but that's just how it worked. Naomi basically would have to find someone related to her husband who was willing to marry her so that she could enjoy the estate that was already hers. And again, that just sounds twisted, but that's just kind of how they, they wrote the laws. Uh, so she knew at her age that wasn't likely. So the only other chance was that someone in her husband's family marry her daughter's-in-law. <laughs> and she says, that's not going to happen. And she tells the girls, I don't want to be, I don't want to be negative, but, but I, I, I'm not going to find a husband at my age. And, and listen, y'all, y'all might be young and y'all might be beautiful, but, but you're Moabites. And you couldn't tell a Moabite from a Jew. You couldn't tell the difference because they lived in the same part of the world. But the Jews did not like the Moabites. And the Moabites didn't like the Jews. And I know this is awful, and why would they be so racist? Why would that even happen? But, but there, this was just how it was. Naomi shares the bitter truth. The only future she had was leaning on the welfare system of Judah, surviving as a widow, and, and she didn't want these girls to have to settle for that and somehow cling to the small chance that somehow someone might fall in love with them. Naomi confesses a shaky faith in the Lord, suggesting that he's not with her or, or that he, his favor had left her. And, and despite all that, despite all of that, after laying out all the reasons for Ruth and Orpah to return to Moab, only Orpah wises up and says, I get the hint. However, Ruth clings. Isn't that what the text says? Ruth clings to Naomi. And then she makes this tremendous proclamation that seems like the last thing that would have come from someone in her position. She says in verse 16, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And here's really what I'm looking for. Your God will be my God. Now for all this to really take on the gravity that it's meant to, we've got to talk about the Moabite factor of all this. Because that's what makes Ruth's confession so much more powerful. So we're going to go on a little bit of a history tour, but I promise you, I think you'll, I think you'll, you'll be benefited by this. Um, I mentioned that Israel really wasn't friendly with the surrounding nations, but to say that Israel had a bad relationship with Moab was an understatement. The tension and the ire between Israel and Moab goes back to the very beginning days of Israel as a tribe, not even a nation. Uh, the earliest of Israel's formation, remember there was the progenitor Abraham was called to wander around in the desert and wait for God to give him a child and maybe that child would have a child who would have a lot of children and one day that family would be the nation of God which becomes Israel. But it was a very slow burn in the early days. But you'll remember when Abraham and Sarah left their homeland to follow after God's promise, their nephew joined them. Remember, Abraham was joined by his nephew, Lot. And Lot was hoping that Abraham was going to ascend to a great nation in a little bit of a quicker process than it was looking like it was going to happen. And when, it, when, when years went by and a decade or more went by, Lot says, hey, I guess I hitched my wagon to the wrong, to the wrong thing. I, I need to find somewhere that's already got it 
developed, got things going, and I need to find a city I can move into and make something for myself. Because Abraham, you're just getting older, uh, and, and you're not having kids, and I don't think a nation's going to start between us three. So Lot finds a place called Sodom to call his home. Now, Sodom was an up-and-coming city-state, a lot of opportunities to young, aspiring people. It was the biggest thing of its day, and a lot of booming businesses, a lot of great people, a lot of great parties. So Lot moved into Sodom, got married, had a couple of daughters. Uh, no need to belabor the story. You know what happens to Sodom. Sodom is so immoral, so wicked, so vile, so violent, so uncivilized that God brings judgment on the city because he doesn't want it to affect his kingdom that he's building with Abraham. So God has claimed this land for his kingdom. Satan's trying to plant a flag in the ground to stop that. And God says, hey, I'll have none of it. A power move by God. He judges Sodom. He judges Gomorrah. But Abraham prays that God would save his nephew and save the future of that family. So Abraham prays and God says, hey, I'll spare Lot. I'll spare his family. But his wife, hey, she doesn't want to leave. So she dies there. But his daughters leave with him and then the story gets very messy. If you thought it was already messy with the whole the Sodom, uh, the Sodom story, it gets messier if you've read the rest of it. The story goes that Lot and his daughters live out their days in the mountains. Nobody wants to associate with them because of the stigma of Sodom, even if they were spared. Um, they're too ashamed to return to Abraham and be judged for the rest of their life. So no doubt, because their moral conscience was seared by all the stuff they were exposed to in Sodom, Lot's daughters are wanting to ensure that their, their father leaves a legacy behind. And they know that nobody's going to want to marry them. So Lot, fearing the, uh, the daughters fearing they'll never get husbands, they get their father drunk one night and they bear his children. And one of those kids they named Moab. And as the story goes, Moab the child becomes Moab the tribe and Moab the tribe becomes Moab the nation. And if you read the whole story, we find that Israel and Moab never got along. And you can imagine why. Israel would always judge Moab as being started by that episode. Everybody looked down on Moab because we know how it started. Lot was too impatient to wait with Abraham, and then he got himself involved in Sodom, and then he got himself in a situation, and his daughters and all that, and that's just so embarrassing. I mean, look at Moab. They're just this embarrassment of a nation, and, and, and Israel always looked, their, looked down their nose at Moab. And Moab was resentful for Israel because Moab said, hey, you didn't have it. You, you, you weren't in our shoes. You don't know what Lot went. You don't know how that all that worked. So Moab was resentful of Israel because God didn't bend over and backwards and bring Moab back into the story. And Moab was just left alone and it got, you know, they far, went far, far away from the God of Israel. And it was all taken to a whole other level when years later, Israel was brought into Egypt and were made slaves. Uh, and while they were gone, the Moabites kind of took over the land that Abraham once had claimed. And they built up their own nation along with a few other tribes. And they said, hey, this is ours now. Abraham and his family are gone. They didn't like us anyway. We didn't like them. So we're going to make sure they never get it back. And you know the story. God brings Israel out of Egypt. And they find out that there's going to be some people occupying their land that they're going to have to deal with. When Moab gets wind that Israel's marching back to the homeland and they're going to fight if they have to, Moab forms a coalition with surrounding nations to basically create an impasse and preemptively meet Israel along the way and fight them so they don't even get a chance to claim the land that belonged to Abraham. So Moab was very shrewd. They knew Israel was mighty. They knew that the God of Israel was on Israel's side and had Israel's back. So Moab convinces some of the smaller nations to go and fight Israel first as they wait along the Jordan River. Uh, King Og of Bashan goes and his armies are destroyed. 
Uh, King Sihon of the Amorites goes and meets them, and his armies are destroyed. So that leaves Moab shaking in its boots, and their king, Balak, is getting pretty desperate. But he has an idea. What if, what if we make a deal with the devil and hope that some curse falls on Israel before they get to us? Now, you have to understand how they thought. They believed Israel's God was real, but they believed their own gods, their own pagan gods were real. They believed the gods were fighting somehow in the cosmos, and, and, and we know that wasn't the case, but that's how they saw the world. And, and we know that all these nations in Canaan served a god called Baal, and he's also called Beelzebub, which is just another name for the devil in the grand scheme of things. They thought they were just dealing with the God they had to deal with, but he had them under his thumb. He had them under his bondage. Clearly, in retrospect, we see that all these nations that opposed Israel were blinded and under the spell of the devil and under Satan's spell as he tried to thwart God's redemption plan from happening in Israel and spreading to the whole world. Clearly, Satan didn't want Israel to take off as a nation because he knew Israel would bring a savior to the world and that wouldn't just save the Jews, but would save everybody. So he was going to try to take control of as many nations as he could to prevent all that from happening. But they could not see this from their bondage. All they knew was Israel was the enemy and they had to do whatever it took to stop them, even if many in their own nation thought that's not a good idea. Because most of the people of Moab were asking this question. Why would we fight against a nation with the only God who actually loved his people and made them practically unstoppable? Israel's God loves them and takes care of them. If we fight against them, we're just going to get destroyed. Have you seen what happened to Bashan? Have you seen what happened to Amorite? It's not going to be good if we go up against them. But Balak was desperate, and he didn't know what else to do. So Balak is going to call up a soothsayer, a demon conjurer, if you will, who he thought had the ability to bring some curse upon Israel. Here's what Numbers tells us. The people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, the king, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. Moab said to the elders of Midian, this is the whole people talking, this horde will lick us lick up all that is around us like an ox licks up the grass. I mean, that's how they thought they were compared to Israel. It's like an ox in the field. Every bit of grass is going to be gone. And we're the grass and they're the ox. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was the king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to Balaam, son of Beor at Pethor, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite of me, as in I'm against them and they're against me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I'll be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know, because Balaam was this soothsayer, this, this prophet of their religion, this, this demon conjurer, Balaam, I know if you curse somebody they're cursed and if you bless somebody they're blessed so Balak calls up Balaam and rumor had it that he had the ability to possess animals and control animals and maybe cause Israel's animals to turn on them and all their armies their horses and their animals maybe would fight against them and hey they thought hey this guy's really who we need to call down the the, the demons and do what we got to do to fight Israel Balaam comes on the scene, he goes out to try to curse Israel. And the story goes that Mr. Soothsayer, Mr. Animal Talker, um, that God reveals to Balaam through his donkey, 
right? That Balaam is on his donkey and they're going down the road because he's going to go and meet the armies of Israel and proclaim a curse over them. And, God, and the donkey of Balaam says, hey, I'm not going to budge. And he hits it and, and whips it and the donkey doesn't move. The donkey throws him off and says, hey, he talks to Balaam. He says, Balaam, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to listen to the God of Israel. And Balaam thought he could talk to animals until one actually talked to him that was under the power of the one and only God. Balaam is completely overwhelmed. And he returns to the king and says, hey, you're going to have to find another man to do this job because Israel's God is determined to bless them and get them into the promised land and I have no chance at fighting him. It's just a confession the devil knows he can't stop God. He can't fight against God and his people. So Balaam says to the king, next slide. Who can, we can either stand in their way and lose or we can surrender to them and him and who knows, maybe he'll welcome us into the story. So Balaam says, hey, the only chance we got is going to the God of Israel and surrendering to him because if we fight against him, we're going to end up like the people of Amorite and the people of Bashan. We're going to die. I've tried to curse them. That's not going to happen. God has told me, I don't even believe, I don't even worship him, but he's told me not going to happen. And, and the remarkable thing happens in the next couple chapters, if you read the whole story, that God actually gives Balaam a prophetic word. Balaam, this, this false prophet, this soothsayer, this demon conjurer, that Balaam Stands in front of the king of, uh, king of uh, Moab, Balaam stands in front of Balak and he says the word of God to king, the king. And, and listen to some of the things that Balaam says to Balak, that the prophet says to the king. The Lord their God is with them and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them. As in, hey, this God loves his people. I know our gods just tolerate us. Our gods really don't like us, but they just kind of, we, we feed them with blood and they, they bless us if or they send rain and they send stuff. Listen, this God, he's real. He's personal. He loves them. He is for them. He is with them. And it's like the horns of an ox and when you get in his way. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what has God wrought? As in God has provided them all these blessings. Behold, a people, a lioness, a lion. Nobody's going to stand in their way. And then he gives the warning and reminder to Moab. He says this. Like palm trees that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets. His seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, a king of their day. His kingdom shall be exalted. He crouched, he lay down like a lion and like a lioness who will rouse him up. Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. So he repeats what God told Abraham. That, it's the, that whoever blesses Israel will be blessed. Whoever curses Israel will be cursed. And Balaam says, I'm not willing to curse the people of God. So Balaam's convinced, but with Moab. And Balaam offers a strong word to Moab in his final oracle where he tells them, I, I know it seems as if the destiny of Moab is to always be at odds with Israel, but it doesn't have to be that way. The God of Israel is also the God of Moab and the God of uh, the Amorites and the God of the Egyptians. He is the God of all nations. His grace is not limited to Israel. Yes, he has a covenant with them, but it exists insofar that he might reach the whole world one day. And this is our chance 
to not fight against him, but surrender to him. And maybe he'll accept us, but even if he doesn't, that's the best option we have. Balaam says, when you fight, when you feel the light shining in your direction, you have to seize the opportunity if it ever comes your way. Lest in our refusal to let old grudges die, we perish disconnected from the one and only God. And then Balaam says this as his final word. I see him now. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. He sees something in the future. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. And here's what he's saying. Anything that opposes Israel, one day God's gonna bring a savior into the world and he's gonna crush the forehead of the enemy. Just like he told Adam and Eve, right? That from Israel is gonna come the savior of the world. And if we oppose them, we will suffer for it. And again, the bigger picture, if we oppose the God of Israel, we oppose our only chance at finding purpose in this life. So it was, Israel settled the land and Moab backed away. They said, hey, we, we, better, we better give them some space. About 100 years later, Israel rebelled and uh, Moab saw the vulnerability and, and attacked them and ruled over them for 20 years. This was an opportunity for Moab to come to know the one true God. Again, yet they mocked him and God raised up a judge and he rescued Israel. And it led to a thousand, thousands of Moabites dying in the war. So God built Israel back up and when he was disciplining them, uh, it was clear to Moab and the rest that God really cares for Israel. He cares enough for Israel to fight for Israel and even discipline them if he needs to to get them back. And while this may seem unpleasant, it was attractive to the surrounding nations because the gods they worshipped didn't care for them because they weren't real. All the while, they were in real bondage to a real enemy, hoping that one day they might be delivered. And, and lo and behold, lo and behold, all of these years later, when this one family of Israel sought refuge in Moab, a young Moabite gets the chance to get into the story. Ruth fully understands the opportunity that was given to her because she knew the history between these two nations. Even if, it cling, even, even if clinging to Naomi brought less than stellar uh, of a life, according to most metrics, Ruth knew that she would gain much more, that what she would gain in the exchange would be far greater and much more than anything she'd be losing or missing out on if she went back to Moab. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said that following him may cost us in our flesh, but it means tremendous and eternal gains for our souls. Even as Ruth hears Naomi remark about God being less than favorable, Ruth knew that even a drop of favor from God was more than satisfying than an ocean of whatever favor this world offered from its idols. Ruth understood the gracious opportunity in front of her. She knew that she wasn't supposed to be in the story. But come on, all these years later, she's not just in the story, she's, she is the story. Think about all that came full circle for the people of Moab. Think about the ties back to Abraham and Lot. How Abraham prayed for Lot and prayed for his children and prayed for their children and God spared him and his family. And yeah, they made it out of Sodom, but the road they went down was less than best. But all of these years later, God was finally bringing redemption to the family of Lot in the most unexpected of ways. I think it was personal to God, a redemption story long in the making to bring Moab back to Israel, to show Lot's family that he hadn't forgotten them, to show Abraham that he meant what he said when he said he'd take care of Lot. Come on, none of us None of us know what prayers were prayed generations ago 
that might be connected to our surrendering to God? There's no way for us to know. That, did Ruth realize that her saying yes to God would basically answer a prayer from 500 years ago? I don't know. But you don't either. None of us know how our yes to God might impact the entire plan for the ages. Think about it. Ruth's yes to God, Ruth's surrender to God finally answered Abraham's prayer 500 years later. I mean, can you even imagine how all that came together? So what if we, what if we lived each day like our yes to God could change our world? Maybe even the world. And I know, like, surrendering to God had that much power to change us and many, and so others. You may ask, that's a little bit of an oversell. Let me ask you, though. What did Ruth's yes to God lead to? Well, we know while she stayed with Naomi, she eventually caught the eye of a husband, one of her husband's relatives, who had the power to restore the estate to Naomi and to Ruth and ensure a future lineage for their family. We know this man's name was Boaz, and... If you want to know how their story goes and how it ends or how it continues, in Ruth chapter 4, listen to how the story wraps up. Verse 13 through 17. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel. And may it be to be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons has borne him. Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name. And there is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, and he is the father of David. King David. So, how important was Ruth's yes to God? Just ask King David. Just ask Jesus. How important is your yes to God? You may never know. But Ruth's yes to God changed the world, literally. Think about how powerful this story is. All that strife of Israel and Moab, God murders their lines, and the Savior of the world doesn't just come from Israel, he comes from Moab. Do you hear that? How did Moab start? In the most unperfect of ways. How did Moab get its start? We know, Lot and his daughters, way from God's plan. How did Moab enter the story? Because one young woman said yes to God. God redeemed all of that that they thought was too far gone. The key moment in this story was when one young widow who had so much, who had lost so much and had so much to lose, in order to prioritize her soul and pursue God, she said yes that's what may lay in the balance of you doing the same thing. Making the same sort of exchange to pursue a relationship with God before you pursue your own personal dreams, before you pursue your own relationships and your own career. By choosing to stay with a Naomi, uh, with Naomi, it could have been that Ruth would never marry again, never have anything to her own name, perhaps die in obscurity, taking care of a woman that she wasn't even obligated to. 
Yet she clung to Naomi anyway. She clung to Naomi's God because she had heard too many good things about the God of Israel and too many promising things. And she knew she was better off surrendering to God with no other guarantees than turning from him towards much more certainty from the world. Can you believe she had the wherewithal to make that decision? Talk about confidence in God, faith in God, trusting in God's goodness and plans. Do we have that kind of faith? Do we have the kind of faith, the awareness of how valuable our souls are, how vital it is that we don't neglect them in the name of tending to some other lesser area? You'll never prosper prioritizing anything over your soul. That's the moral of the story, right? No matter how pressing that need may be, the greatest needs lie within you. Take it from Ruth. She cast herself before God in full assurance. Now, when, when, when she caught Boaz's eye and she knew Boaz's baby was interested in her, Naomi said, hey, I want you to go to the threshing floor, the big barn where they all work, and I want you to go in there. I just want you to lay down on the hay. And when he comes in from working all night or comes in from working all day, he's going to see you there, and that's going to be your chance of starting a conversation. You know what Naomi was telling her to do? Cast your life in the hands of the Lord and trust everything in to him and leave all the other what-ifs and maybes and I don't knows in his hands. Naomi tells Ruth to do what we should do in regards to trusting in the Lord. If you've got questions, well, if I, if I say yes, then what does that mean about this? And what about how am I going to be able to do that? And what about all the other little things that are tied to that? My, you know, my worries and my fears and, and all the things that we are worried about tending to in this world. You know what the Bible tells us to do? You know what Peter goes along and tells us to do? To cast our cares upon him, for he cares for you. That we can trust that God knows all the questions we have and knows all the what-ifs and the wonders that we have. We can trust him if we cast our soul before him, all of our cares, all of our dreams, all of our desires, all of our plans, and just trust God to work it all out. But make it known to him that you choose him over everything else. You're not looking to him for, to bail you out of all your worldly problems. You're looking to him because you know that you need him. Your soul needs him. And you're going to trust him with all the what-ifs you might have. Today, the example of Ruth looms over all of us when she says to Naomi, I will be with you, with your people, and I will be with your God. The, this example leaves us with this, this, this resolution, that we would tether our souls to God's plans, God's place, and God's people, and leave all the rest in his hands. That's what Ruth did. She knew, she didn't know what his plans were, but she tethered her soul, she cast her soul in front of God, and she knew that he was going to work things out. She could trust him. And she knew that Naomi was one of his people. And she knew wherever he was centering his activity around in Israel. And she resolved to put her soul in front of her flesh and seek a relationship with God above everything else. So church, the, the call over our lives today is surrender to God's plans. Commit to the places that he's already shown himself present in, as in the local church, as in the family of God, the refuge that's offered, the vision that is imparted. Commit to his people so that we might work together and support each other's souls. That's the message. That as Ruth committed to God's plans and God's place and God's people, so must we. Because you just don't know what lies in the balance. And listen, if you have kids, if you have grandkids, you know what lies in the balance of you saying yes to God. Their future with God, right? 
If you have people that you love and people that you, that you want to provide for and that you want to leave an impact on, you know what lies in the balance. But even if you don't have all those things, you, we will never understand just what lays in the balance of us saying yes to God. But what if we made every decision like it could change the whole world? And definitely it'll change our world. I love the story of Ruth. I love the story of God redeeming Moab, the most irredeemable people that most thought were on the, world, on the planet. God redeemed them because he keeps his promises. He's trustworthy. Ruth was one of the only few that believed that promise in her people, of her people. So church, what a story of God's grace. As Jesus has made it very clear to us where we find salvation and how we find salvation, Ruth made it very clear to us why we should surrender to God and what we can have confidence in God and how we can have confidence in God. The chains have been broken. Sin has been forgiven. Sin has, we've been set free from all that holds us back. And we have the ability today to say, I say yes to God. I don't know what you need to say yes to God regarding. I don't know what you need to surrender to God specifically, but all of us need to surrender to God all of our lives. Lay them down at his feet because our souls are too precious to waste them on something less than serving him and seeking him first. Who knows what a decision you make how it, might impact, how it might impact your life, it brings you into his story. And that's what changes history. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the story of Ruth. Thank you for her testimony that she was gonna cling to Naomi because she was gonna cling to Naomi's God. Ruth saw that the only chance she had at having, uh, uh, bringing value and bringing importance and purpose to her soul was by turning to the God of Israel that Moab thought was their enemy. But she says, I know, I know, I know. He is a good God. He's invited me into this story. I shouldn't be here, but he's given me a place and I want to take the most advantage of it. Lord, I pray that everybody here today would realize just how blessed we are to know who God is and to hear from God this morning. I pray that we all would understand what Jesus did for us, that we would all would surrender to him and say yes to him because who knows just what our yes to God might do and how it might change our world. Lord, thank you so much for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.